So what is your story of salvation? Do you know that that is an experience that you have had? Do you understand it? Uh, the greatness of it, of what God did in your salvation? And do you understand it enough in its depth and its height and its breadth that you can tell it to others? I love the stories of salvation and how God saves people and all their stories are different. All of our stories are different. I don't know if you know the story of the man who wrote Amazing Grace. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. You think, what was it that he experienced? I guess Amazing Grace is the most popular, the most well-known, loved uh, hymn in Christian history. What happens in a man's life when he can then write Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me? I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. It's about 300, almost 300 years ago um, that John Newton was born in England. Uh, he was raised as a little boy by a devout Christian mother, but his father we would call a heathen. But his mother was a devout Christian. But she died two weeks before his seventh birthday. And uh, he was raised then by his heathen father who took John Newton when he was 11 years old to sea with him because his father was a sea captain. 11-year-old boy out with the sailors. Um, John Newton became a wretch of a man. He was known for his vulgar language. He was known to mock the things of God. He was a despicable person, even among those that he worked with. He, he ended up, after he left his father's ship, he became a part of the Royal Navy for Great Britain. Later became, uh, worked on a slave ship and one time when they were in West Africa, I believe it was Sierra Leone, don't know that, he was such a despicable person, they kicked him off the ship and left him in West Africa. And he became a slave, a servant to the African people, to the slaves themselves. Until his father heard about it and made arrangements and he was rescued on a ship that was headed for England. He was 23 years of age. In the early morning hours of May 10th, 1748, John Newton is woken, sleeping in the bottom part of the ship by a, a fierce storm. When John Newton got up on deck, the boat was taking in water. In fact, he said as he got up on the deck, there was a wave that came across and a man that was beside him was washed to sea and surely died. And they began, I don't know what pumps are, but the story is told they began to pump the water 
off the ship. But John Newton knew that he was going to die that day. As that ship, even as experienced a sailor as he was, he knew that they were surely going to die. And in the midst of that storm, in the darkness, May 10th, 1748, he began to think of a devout Christian mother who had told him about a Savior who died for his sins. And all John Newton knew to do was to cry out for mercy from Jesus that he would save him. I don't know if that included the storm. I don't know if that included his soul. And it was probably all wrapped up into one. Somewhere in the midst of that storm as he cried out to Jesus and as he faced death, John Newton's heart in an amazing way was not only turned to Christ, but the journey of a transformed life began. May 10th, 1748, John Newton would say that when his feet finally hit land days after that, he was a changed person. He was no longer the same. He came under the influence in England in those days in a revival movement. John Wesley, George Whitfield, and their preaching. And he eventually surrenders to preach. And he trains for the ministry. And he is assigned by the Church of England to a little parish church in Olney, England. To begin his ministry. And he was there, I think, for some 16 years. Several things of note of Olney, England, and I want to go someday. I'll send you pictures when I get back. I'll show you pictures. The interesting thing for us as Baptists, and John Newton was not a Baptist, but the center of uh, Baptist life in England was right there around Olney, England. And uh, I could throw out names, but they're not anybody that you know. But I know from Baptist history, they were our founding forefathers for the Baptist movement that started in those days. And Olney, England is, I looked at it on a, an aerial map this morning before I came in here. It's, it's a little bit larger than Huntington, but not much larger. And John Newton would have been contemporaries with some of our Baptist forefathers and eventually becomes William Carey as a young man there, John Sutcliffe. Andrew Fuller, just our founding fathers really for the Baptist movement and the missions, modern missions movement, right around all the England and John Newton was right there. There was another young man that came to his church, uh, William Copper, C-O-W-P-E-R, but pronounced Copper. And John Newton, William Copper, in those days in Olney, wrote hymns. Uh, and they eventually produced a hymn book called Olney Hymns, 1779. Brother Shane, William Copper, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. William Copper, there's probably others. But in that hymn book, Olney hymns, Amazing Grace, 
How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. The thing that strikes me is John Newton wrote those words 30 years after Jesus began the transformation of his life on May 10, 1748. 30 years later, what was the testimony of his mouth? I was a wretch of a man that Jesus reached down and saved by his grace and by his mercy. As an old man, John Newton, in his last days, was asked by a man how he was doing. He was in his 80s at this time. Brother Ted, just a young man in his 80s, early 80s. Uh, And the famous quote by John Newton in his last days. He said, my memory is almost gone, but two things I remember. That I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. John Newton wrote his own epitaph for his tombstone there in the churchyard in Alney, England. I want to go someday. I don't know if I've already mentioned that. John Newton wrote this on his tombstone. If you go with me, you can see it. We'll take our picture together, Tasha, if you want to go, okay? It says, John, this is what he wrote. John Newton, once an infidel, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had so long labored to destroy. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. My question is, so what is your story of salvation? Do you know it is an experience that you have had? Do you understand it in its greatness of what God did for you when he saved you? And is it a story that you can tell? Uh, I thought about Hebrews 2, 3 in which the writer of Hebrews says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? This fall, I want us to think about so great a salvation. What is it that God has done for us in Jesus Christ? And I want us to turn to the life of Paul, and I want to turn specifically to the book of Romans. And there's a reason we come to Romans. Um, I want you to see this morning, and these verses will be on the screen, but you can turn in your Bible. And uh, in Romans 1, verse 13, this is how Paul, uh, obviously there's 12 verses of introductory matter before this, but pretty much begins what he was going to talk to the Christians at Rome about <clears throat> Romans 1 13 through 17 he said now I do not want you to be unaware brethren that I often planned to come to you but was hindered until now that I might have some fruit among you also 
just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to the unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. We will see this in the days to come, but if you were to read the book of Romans, you would know that the theme of the book of Romans is salvation. And these days, this fall, I want us to talk about what is it that God does when he saves a person. And I want us to see the greatness of it and the glory of it. There was a reason that as Paul wrote to the Romans, he talked about salvation at the very core of the Christian life. If not the one message, Brother Cody, if there was one message, if you only had one sermon to preach, surely it would be a message on salvation. How is a person saved and what is it that God does in a person in saving them? The gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. Rome was the largest, greatest, most influential city in Paul's day. There were many Christians in Rome. But the interesting thing historically is that the church at Rome was not founded by an apostle but was founded by unknown Christians who had gone there with the gospel and it had spread. And ah, there's, ah, there's a whole history there that there is one of the Roman historians talk about, I think it's Suetonius, that talks about that in 49, Emperor Claudius expelled the Jews out of Rome because of a, a dispute about one called Crestus. And surely it was Christ that they were disputed of. And Aquila and Priscilla, if we see in the book of Acts, were expelled from Rome, I think because the church had grown to such an extent that there was a backlash. But Paul had never been there. But you see from his words in verse 13, he had planned to go there. Why did Paul want to go there? It was the most influential city of its day. And Paul, we could look at other scriptures that he had preached the gospel in the parts where he had been and now it was time for him to go elsewhere. There is a sense historically when we understand Romans and we go to the book of Acts and we see that Paul would have written Romans during his time in, in Corinth and as he leaves Corinth he's taking the, in his third missionary journey the collection for the Jerusalem saints and he's traveling towards Jerusalem and there is this statement, there is this statement that he makes on the way that is contemporaneous to, to this time in which he knew that there was trouble ahead. And he says to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 23, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city saying that chains and tribulations await me. And I say that to say to you, I believe one of the reasons that Paul sat in Corinth and wrote 
not only a letter to the Romans, but a letter about salvation is because there was a sense in his heart, even though he needed to get there, that he would never make it because of the persecution that faced him. He had a sense. The Holy Spirit was saying, and sure enough, he was arrested, but God engineered the circumstances that they took him to Rome as he appealed to Caesar, and he ends up in Rome. But I would contend at this point in his ministry, he does not know whether he's ever going to make it to the greatest, largest, most influential city of his day. And so he says, I, and there's a great Christian church there, but he needs to write a letter. And what is he going to write the letter about? About his gospel that God had given him, about salvation. How is a person saved? So do you understand kind of the sense why Romans is created? And why we would come to it today if we wanted to answer the question, so how is a person saved? Go to the words of It was such an influential and significant book or letter. It is the first in order. When the church put the, the order of books together, what did they start with? The life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The history of the other church, the history of the early church, Acts. There are 13 of Paul's letters. What are we going to start with? Boom! That's, I don't know what that sound is. It's like that's the sound of the first book. That first, what, what are we going to do? It's like, no, we go with Romans. You start with Romans. It is Paul in his purest doctrine talking about how a person is saved. Historically, mm. Even those verses that I've read, particularly 16 and 17, <laughs> I've told the stories before, but God uses verse 16 and 17 for the conversion not only of Martin Luther that started the Protestant Reformation, but then in turn John Wesley that started the great Wesleyan movement. I've spent some time this week going through the book of Romans. Can I put that next screen up that's got like those seven words or how many words that is? There it is. And I thought, what, what is it? I wanted to give you an overview this Sunday. And then we're going to read chapters 1 through 10, and then we'll be done. That's it. Oh, you think I'm joking. Oh, my. What was the gospel? What is the message of salvation? It actually begins with a righteous God who's holy, who sets the standards, who does not change. And the second part, well, and actually the term righteous is a word that we're going to come back to. Because the reality is, is only a person who is righteous can stand before a righteous God. There is nothing unrighteous in the presence of God. Well, we have a problem and Paul talks about it in Romans, and it is our sin. Because we choose to live lives that are apart from God. You can call it sin, you can call it ungodliness. But Paul would say all of us are sinners. And it's not just that all of us are sinners, but all of us are sinners through and through. Sin has infected everything about us. And even though we try to justify ourselves in the presence of a righteous God by our own standards, we fall so, so short because God is holy. 
and he's perfect in his righteousness. In the midst of that, what Paul delineates in Romans, and we'll read it here in just a minute. Some of you know these verses. When I was without strength, when I was lost and I had no way to save myself, I had no way to justify myself between, before a righteous and holy God. God, out of his love and grace and mercy and his goodness, comes up with a solution. That he will come himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And when I cannot by my own goodness or righteousness make myself in a good standing with God, God said, no, I'm going to make a way. I will die for your sins. And the sacrifice of the cross will become a substitution for you. If you believe, and that's the faith, all God asks is that I say yes. And it's not that my faith somehow justifies me before God or makes me right or God's pleased with me because of my faith. Faith simply becomes the conduit in which the grace of God flows that I open up the spigot and I say yes. I can't save myself. I need you. I turn away from my sins. Repentance is a part of faith. And then those last three what is it then that God does? <laughs> he justifies me. By the blood of Jesus, and Paul talks about this. By the blood of Jesus, there's a sacrifice for my sins. And when I was unrighteous and I was ungodly and I was out of sorts, <laughs> I was undone, as Isaiah would say, with God, God declared me innocent oh we're gonna have to talk about that one because quite honestly that's quite offensive that God would a holy God would justify sinner but I'll just tell you in a couple Sundays we're gonna talk about it only a holy God can justify a sinner God declares us righteous the word righteous and justify we'll have to talk about that are the same words but it's not just that salvation stops at justification. God, as in John Newton's life, in Paul's life, no, God begins to change my life. If there has been a genuine salvation experience when I acknowledged my sin before a righteous God and I knew of the grace of God and I responded by faith in Him and God in that initial act justifies me, washes away my sin, puts me in a right standing with God. God does not leave me there. No, his Holy Spirit comes in my life to begin. And Paul will talk about this, Romans 8. Begins the process of change in my life, of conforming me to the image of his Son. And that'll take the rest of our days. It, it, it will. You're never going to be completely sanctified. Paul wouldn't say that of himself. But someday, when we make the transition from this life to the next, and actually the, actually the process has already begun of glorification, but eventually we will experience that glory in its fullness in eternity because the only way to get to the glory of heaven is when we acknowledge our sin and the grace of God and we believe in Him 
And Jesus, through his shed blood, justifies us by washing away our sin. And he begins the process. If we've truly been justified, we will be sanctified, Paul says. The change that happens in our life, I would say to you, if there hasn't been a change, then you have to question whether there was ever a justification. But those whom he justified, he also sanctified, and in the end, he will glorify. And that's just a sketch this morning. I want, to, I want us to think about briefly, and then I want to read 34,000 scriptures, and then we'll be done. The reason Paul talked about this was this is what happened to him. Paul is not talking about some gospel that he's dreamed up or somebody's told him about. No, that's what Jesus did to him. And Paul thought he was a righteous person, but it was his own righteousness that he was trying to justify himself before God. And God had to, Jesus had to appear to him in a great light on the road to Damascus to slap him in the face and say, You're a sinner. Jesus, he said, who are you? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And he blinds him. But why did God, Jesus, come to him out of his grace and mercy? He tracked him down, Brother Shane, just as we sang earlier. He tracked him down. And Paul responded in faith. And I didn't say this about John Newton. John Newton, really in the, in the midst of that storm, I'm sorry, I shouldn't be going back to that opening illustration. He felt like he was too bad of a sinner for Jesus ever to save. And surely when Paul saw the gravity of his sin, he thought there's no way. But when he responded to Christ in faith, then Jesus washed away his sins. Just like that. And he began the process of sanctification as Paul ends the end of his life, he looks for the glory that God will bring. Paul presents it to the Romans because it was what he had experienced, what he had, under, what he had come to understand, and what he told about the message of salvation. I want us to read, and then I'm, I'm, I'm really done. But I want you to take your Bibles. It'll be on the screen. And I want you to see from chapter to chapter all of these components that Paul talks about. I'm only going to read selective verses from each chapter, but Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. Chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God set forth as a propitiation or sacrifice by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. To demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 5. But to him who does not work, but believes on him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Chapter 5, verse 6. For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. Chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Chapter 8, verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Chapter 8, verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Verse 33 and 34. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. And finally in chapter 10, starting in verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. The gospel is the good news of salvation. My prayer and my intent in the weeks that follow are threefold. I want to make sure that you have experienced the salvation that I've talked about. Secondly, I want you to understand it in its greatness. My thought is sometimes we forget years or decades in what it was that Jesus did for us. And I want us to be brought back there. And I want us to stay there and understand what it was that God did for us. And then finally, I want us to understand it so that we can tell it. Paul said, I am a debtor to Jews and Greeks because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. Not only do I need to understand it, but I need to tell it. Because as, even as we talked last week, it is through the telling of the gospel that people hear and believe and are saved and changed. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand this morning. Uh, Brother Byron and I are going to be at the front. Oh, quite honestly, my call today, if you've never experienced the salvation that only Christ can bring, I'm going to ask you to come and just be honest before me and before God. Because all of us someday are going to stand before God and just say, I, I, I need what you talked about in the gospel. Uh, for you as Christians, um, today may be a day to at least start remembering what it was that Christ has done for you. And maybe you want to come to the altar and just pray and to thank Jesus for what he's done in your life. And then the challenge will always be, maybe there's somebody that you know that maybe has never heard, maybe you've never told them. And you would make a commitment before God to say, God, use me to tell them. Whatever your response is, we invite you to come. As Brother Shane, Shane leads us today.
Yeah. 